Father, so much of your spirit is evident here, and I'm so thankful for that, Father. Most of all, Father, I'm thankful for the joy, the joy of the Lord as it's present in our hearts, as it's evident in our behavior and our words and all that we do here. We know, Father, that if we were followed in our daily walk each day of our week, there'd be moments when we aren't showing you as well as we do here, but you're never far from us. And we ask, Father, that what we learn and what we hear today, what you do in our hearts through the Spirit would be something you would do in many other ways throughout the week, that you would call us to walk in a closer walk, to witness in a better way, in a stronger way. Let the word that we study this morning in Genesis give us greater opportunities, trigger in our mind new ways of speaking and thinking about you and representing you to the world. And when it's the time we face you and stand in judgment, Father, that you will confirm for us the wisdom of having spent time in your word above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 44 of Genesis, and as we open in the chapter, Joseph, if you remember, is seated at a table by himself, a few feet away from his 11 brothers who are seated at their own table eating a meal he gave them. And as he watches them eat, watches them laugh together and enjoy the time, he ponders silently what to make of them. The last time Joseph sat in the company of his brothers while they dined, the situation was eerily similar The brothers ate together without Joseph, while Joseph spent his time sitting alone in a pit in which they had thrown him. Now, once again, here they are eating without Joseph at their table. And so Joseph wonders if their hearts have changed from the last time he experienced this moment. Are they the same men who possessed so much hatred for him that they would sell him into slavery? Are they treating their younger brother Benjamin so well at this table because they truly love him? Or have they simply put themselves on their best behavior because of their fear of Joseph and the need for the grain? Have they experienced the sorrow that God produces leading to repentance? Or have they simply experienced worldly sorrow? That's the question that sits on Joseph's heart. And while he contemplates the nature of his brother's repentance, he considers that this is only the second year of a seven-year famine. And he knows that his family is not going to be able to survive outside of Egypt in the midst of a seven-year famine. Not for that long, not without help. And it's only been a little more than a year since this famine began, and they have already become so dependent on Egypt for grain that they've now made two trips into this nation for sustenance. And he knows they're going to keep coming. But they don't know that. Not yet. And Joseph also understands that the God that he follows, the God that has called this family to be his own nation, that God is the one producing all of these circumstances, the famine and the the stress on the land. And he has done these things to soften the heart of his family, of his father and of his brothers, so that reconciliation can take place. And eventually they're all going to be in Egypt. And Joseph knows that as well, because it was God himself who spoke to Abraham, saying, your descendants will be in a land that is not theirs. They know this. They've heard this. So Joseph sits in this moment, carefully choosing his next step. He has already applied two tests to these brothers to try to reveal the true nature of their hearts. You remember the first test was taking Simeon away from them and then placing their money back in their sacks after they came to Egypt that first time for grain. And the test there was about whether the brothers would have a willingness to place themselves at risk to gain the release of their brother Simeon. It was also a test on Jacob. Would Jacob's heart 
have been moved to allow Benjamin to go back into Egypt when he was the favorite son. Now, the second test was the one we studied last week when they were all sitting at the table and he gave Benjamin such an excess quantity of food. The test there was whether in that moment, as the brothers let their guard down, would they reveal their true hearts concerning Benjamin? Would they show resentment again just by reading their faces, just by looking at their attitudes at the table? Would their hearts remain stony cold or was there some life to them after all? Well, the sons and the father have passed those first two tests as far as Joseph can see. But there is still the matter of whether or not they truly have changed. And so he prepares a third test. That's where we are today. Chapter 44 is the third test, the final test that Joseph applies. Begins verse one and reading from there. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away. They with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Well, that's Joseph's plan. And his plan is very similar to the second test, only it comes with a twist. In the last test, the first one, Joseph returned each man's money back into their sack. He's doing that here again as well. In the first case, it was to produce that fear that the men would have about returning, for they feared when they came back they'd be accused of stealing. Now, as he did then, he puts the money back in their sacks. But since they've seen this maneuver before, that's not the test. They've already become accustomed to Joseph giving them their money back. And we know that Joseph's doing this because he doesn't want to take any money from his family. This time, Joseph instructs his servant to place a special possession of Joseph's in Benjamin's sack, specifically in Benjamin's sack. It's a silver cup. In verse five, Joseph telling his servants what to do. They are to approach and say that this cup is used for divination. Now, in ancient times, sorcerers or magicians attempted to discern future events through the use of various objects to include a cup like this. And they would take a cup in the case of this divining object. They would take a cup and fill it with water. And then on the surface of the water, they would sprinkle dust of either gold or silver or some other material. And based on the way the patterns formed on the surface of the water, they could then try to understand answers to questions concerning the future. Usually the questions were phrased in yes or no form, and depending on how the material moved on the surface of the water, they would try to understand its meaning. We can understand the process to be one of demonic activity. The demonic spirit world would be moving or in some other way interacting with the particles in the water and giving the answers to the questions. So what do we make of the fact that Joseph says he has a divining cup? Are we to assume that Joseph practiced this? Divining, in other words? Well, we know God's word strongly condemns divination or any form of sorcery. So we have to assume that Joseph, who is a man of God, would have known that this kind of behavior was off limits for him. And from the story itself, it becomes clear that Joseph is not a diviner. First of all, he doesn't call the cup a divining cup when he first mentions it. It isn't until he tells the servants what to say that he adds that detail. Joseph just calls it a silver cup. It's as if he just took some cup in his home and he said, here, take this. Tell him it's my divining cup. He's playing a role 
The role he's playing here is one that's intended to test his brothers. His power in his position wasn't merely the fact that he had the authority of Pharaoh. His power was also in his knowledge and in his insight. In fact, if you remember, it was his ability to interpret dreams that got him the job in the first place. So his base of power is the way he seems to know things no one else can know. He seems to understand things that are outside human intellect. And in some cases, that's true. But in the case of the brothers, he simply knows they are his brothers when they don't know that he is one of the brothers. It's that knowledge that he has been using against them. And so he is building on that impression. He wants the brothers to think that he has this power to know things that the normal human being would not know. Now, a diviner's most prized possession was whatever instrument he used for the purpose of divining future events, whether it was a cup or some other tool, it doesn't matter. This would have been their most prized possession. So when Joseph tells the servants, I want you to put this in Benjamin's sack and then I want you to find it and accuse them of stealing it. It was an incredibly serious charge. It was like someone stealing Tim Duncan's sneakers. It was like stealing Tiger Woods putter. It'd be like stealing Mick Jagger's chapstick. It's anything so important that if they didn't have it, you can't see how they could function. In this case, the penalty would have been almost certainly death. And so what Joseph has done is to set up a test in which, once again, the brothers have reasons to fear him for what they may have done or seemed to do. Now, that's the key to this third test. The key to this third test, the thing that makes this different than the prior test, is that in this case, only Benjamin is placed in jeopardy. In the earlier example, all the brothers had their money returned. But in this case, it's only Benjamin. So the test in this situation becomes whether his brothers will abandon him in his time of need. They can leave him behind. They're not going to be found guilty. They can continue on to Canaan. They could have very easily have done to him what they did do to his sibling, to Rachel's other son, to Joseph. And that is to separate themselves from him. And what's really interesting about this test is that unlike the last time with Joseph, in this case, they would be just in doing so. They could go back to their father and say, it's not our fault. We had nothing to do with it. It was not something we made happen, unlike the first time. So they could legitimately claim their innocence. So Joseph is testing their hearts here to determine whether or not they're going to act differently this time concerning a son of Rachel than they did the previous time concerning a son of Rachel. He even arranges to have the cup discovered while the brothers are still on the road. Now, that's an interesting detail because it places the brothers far from their father's influence, which is also the way Joseph was given up nearly 15 years ago when they were in Dothan. Far from Jacob's influence. All of the details of this test match perfectly the last time that they had the chance to make the right choice, but didn't. So the question was, will they make the right choice this time? So Joseph has constructed this test to reveal their hearts. Look at what comes from that. Verse six. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be made the Lord's slaves. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. 
Then they hurried, each man lowering his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. So the servants catch up to the brothers, as Joseph instructed, and he speaks the words that Joseph commanded him to deliver. Naturally, of course, the brothers are shocked to hear the accusations because they had no intent to do something of this sort. They believe they haven't. They defend their honor, and they defend it with a basic observation about their past, about their past behavior. They say, look, you remember we came the first time. You gave us our money back. When we discovered it, what did we do? We brought it back. We had all of this money, and we brought it back. So why would we steal one little silver cup? It makes no sense. And they're right. The brothers were so sure, in fact, of their innocence that they offer a test of their innocence. Now, in Egypt, and I think this is generally true throughout the ancient East, an accused, someone who's been accused of a crime, could propose his own test of innocence so long as he also named his own punishment in advance of the verdict. And if the one who was charging you accepted your offer, then justice would be determined according to your word. So in this case, the test that the brothers offer is you can search all our sacks to see if we have this cup. If the cup is found, we will allow the guilty one to be killed and we'll give the rest of ourselves over to you as slaves. That was the test they offered of their innocence. So in verse 10, the servant agrees to the test. Now, what he does, though, is he modifies it in the brother's favor, which is also allowed by law. The accuser could take the offer and then modify, but only in favor of the accused. So in this case, he says, we will look for the cup. And if it's found, the one who has it will be made a slave. The rest of you can go free. Now, obviously, what the servant is doing here is something in keeping with what he knows his master is intent on achieving. The master is trying to separate the brothers. So he reduces the penalty for the guilty one to enslavement, not to death, because obviously Joseph does not want this whole test to arrive at Benjamin's death. And the way justice was carried out in this day, had they found the cup there, they would have taken the penalty there. So there would have been no trial. There would have been no chance for appeal. Benjamin would have been killed. And as a result, they don't want that to happen. The servant knows that. So he changes the terms in favor of the brothers. And then secondly, he doesn't want to take the rest of them as slaves. Because here again, the point was to separate them, to drive a wedge between them. And so he lessens the penalty for them. He says, no, you guys will just be able to go away. I only need the one who's guilty. So the search is held. And, of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. I like the fact that they go from oldest to youngest. Once again, there's an insightful knowledge of the servant knowing age when it wouldn't have been readily apparent. That must have unnerved them again. But he gets to the last one, and I think it may have been for effect. Because once they reach the last one, there it is. Benjamin has it. As the cup is found, we're told all the brothers begin to mourn. And, of course, ancient East mourning looks different than it does for us today. They rip their clothes. They show their intense feelings of distress by tearing their clothes publicly. Now, the scripture doesn't record any conversation among the brothers at this point, but we can imagine what might have been happening. Benjamin, no doubt, tried to plead his innocence in the moment. I don't know how that got there. I did not put that there. How did that get there? Doesn't matter. It's been found. And perhaps the older brothers, were they turning on him? How could you do this? How could you take this cup? Or were they listening to him? I know that's not what I did. Somebody put that in my sack. Don't worry. Don't worry. We know it happened with our money. Which is true. We don't know. 
But the most interesting part of the moment is what happens in verse 13. It says, every man loaded his own donkey and returned to the city. But we know only Benjamin was required to return at this point, according to the oath that was taken. So the other brothers could have just continued on, but it's evident they don't want to. Every one of them loaded up what they had taken off in that stopping point on the road, and they accompanied their brother back to Egypt. Now, we're not told why, not yet, but the reason becomes clear soon enough. They are not going to return to Jacob without Benjamin, at least not the leader of the family at this point, which is Judah. They have made this trip once before. They have gone through this once before. They have gone out with all of the brothers and come back with one less. In fact, they've done that twice now, and they see the impact it has on their father. They're not doing that a third time. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So in verse 14, we're given a sense of the timing here. We're told Joseph was still in the house. So they left in the early morning. They had come to the house the day before. They'd had that noon meal. We're told it seems as though they stayed in the home and then left the next morning. But in the same day as they left, they've come back. Joseph still being in the house. And that indicates Joseph is acting very quickly to conclude his test. He didn't let them get very far. And as the brothers arrive, they fall on the ground before Joseph. Now, that's another fulfillment of the dream that Joseph got, isn't it? Could the brothers have ever imagined, back when they were younger, that they would be doing this thing in front of Joseph, not once, but several times? Could they actually have imagined this? No. The answer to that is no. And we know that because of what they said in Genesis 37. I'll remind you. Genesis 37, 8. Then the brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? Yes, I am, would be the answer to that question. And it's evident even now. In verse 14, they fall to the ground. And then in verse 15, Joseph begins the encounter. He says, what is this deed that you have done? And then he says, do you not know that a man such as I can indeed practice divination? Here again, the question comes up. Is he saying that he does? Well, look at the words carefully. He says, do you not know that a man such as I can practice divination? That's a true statement. A man such as Joseph could, if he wanted to, practice divination. But he does not. That's not the basis for this. Joseph didn't need a cup to figure out where this cup was. He put it there, right? So he's not practicing divination. He's playing the role again to get these guys to fear them. Joseph's limitless power or seemingly limitless power of discernment is what's leaving these brothers in this heartfelt moment of confession. They don't have any sense that they can hide from this guy. Nothing seems to be outside his reach. The effect is to cause them to be transparent. And that's what he's seeking. Transparency. Not to play games, but to own up to who they really are. And then Judah's response reveals that. And I think it's particularly interesting that Judah is leading this conversation. It shows us that he has taken this prominent leadership role in the family. He is now the leader in the family. And that's perfect justice when you remember that it was Judah who took the lead in the effort to sell Joseph in the first place. So the roles for Judah have completely reversed. 
And he begins by saying, well, what can we say, my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? And then very interestingly, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Judah's defense is no defense. Judah says the facts are undeniable. But what's so interesting about that is the facts are exactly wrong. They didn't take the cup. Benjamin didn't take the cup. You might think this would have been the perfect moment of all the times that they've had a chance to defend themselves. This would be the place where they would actually be able to say definitively, we didn't do it. Now, I have to believe Judah believes that his younger brother is innocent. I think it's more likely that Judah suspects the cup has been planted because he knows the money had that same pattern in the past. He doesn't understand why, but that's why he goes to God. That's why he says God is revealing our iniquity. I think he's confessing not just this sin, so to speak, this supposed theft. I think he's opening his heart in a bigger sense. I think that was the whole point of the test. He says, how can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? And the Hebrew word there for justify is sadak, which literally means declare someone innocent, to acquit them, to declare them righteous. It's the same word we use in a Greek form in the New Testament to talk about our salvation, having been acquitted by our faith, justified in Christ. Judah's asking a rhetorical question because the answer is clear. He's saying we have no way to acquit ourselves. And to that, he's absolutely right. Guilty or not, he cannot defend himself under these circumstances. The cup was there. He can't stand in righteousness. And of course, Judah could not have appreciated, not in this moment, how true his words were, how much truer they were than he even suspected. Not only were they unable to acquit themselves over the cup, they could not stand before their brother in righteousness, the one they sold into slavery, the one they betrayed. They could not acquit themselves of that. Judah's moment of confession may have been prompted by the one situation, but it is a part of a much larger conversation. His brothers, I don't think, could have ever understood just how powerfully God has orchestrated this moment to their benefit. And his recognition that God is at work in this is a glimmer of hope that demonstrates he's confessing sin. Not just this effort, not just this moment, but his guilt before God. So in the face of that apparent guilt, he offers to Joseph all of his siblings along with himself as slaves to Joseph in compensation for the guilt. Now, that was the original offer. Remember, that's what the brothers had offered to the servant, which the servant rejected. They're trying again with Joseph. Once again, they're trying to protect Benjamin, trying to stay as a family unit. And Joseph tries once more to drive a wedge. He says, no, 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 I don't need that. The rest of you can go. The test now has come to its climactic moment. Now, in the past, Judah, the one who had the eloquent ability to compel his brothers into action, in the past, it was his eloquence that argued for leaving Joseph. It was his eloquence that convinced the brothers to sell Joseph. And now it becomes his turn to use those same skills in the longest speech recorded in the book of Genesis to argue for the opposite. Verses 18 and onward. Then Judah approached him and said, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, we have an old father And a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for 
If he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus, it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, get us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn in pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety. For the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me? For I fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Well, that speech is as powerful as it is unexpected coming from Judah. He approaches, it says, he asks Joseph for a semi-private moment. And then he informs Joseph of all that had transpired after they left the first time. Now, this is news to Joseph. Joseph doesn't know about all of these conversations back in Canaan. And Judah doesn't try to use the story to acquit himself or to acquit anyone else. He simply explains why he must not let Benjamin stay behind. He tells Joseph the story of how he told his father, Jacob, that he would not leave Benjamin in harm's way. In fact, he says, I gave my own life as surety, as a guarantee to my father, to Jacob, that Benjamin's life would be spared, that he would be safe. And that if he does not return, I would die in his place, because otherwise that would bring sorrow to my father such that he would die. He mentions Jacob going down to Sheol. Now, Sheol is that Old Testament name for the place God would hold all of the departed souls of mankind prior to the death of Christ on the cross. And if you remember from Luke chapter 16, it's a place that actually has two halves, two sides, one side reserved for those who die in faith and the other for those who die without faith. And in this moment, that's the place that would capture Jacob should he die. The side of faith, of course. And so to comfort his father, Judah made that promise. And now he's presenting to Joseph the reality of what burden he has taken upon himself. And from the very beginning of all that Joseph's been doing, what did he want to know? He wanted to know that the brothers' hearts have changed. And in fact, he's been working with the Lord in that regard. The Lord brought the famine, the Lord brought the dream, and Joseph applied the tests. But all of it was for the same outcome. And now with the third test and with Judah's confession, he has his proof. There could be no better proof than that the one who argued for the separation of Joseph from the rest of the brothers would be the one who would stand in front of Joseph now and say, take my life over Benjamin's. No man has greater love for another than that he would lay his own life down. There is no greater definition of love. He has shown in the greatest way possible that he loves his brother Benjamin. And you could argue that he loves his father, which is another aspect to the sin of the brothers. They gave no regard to the way that Joseph's disappearance would affect their father. In fact, you might even argue they were looking forward to telling him. But now it's the last thing they want. How do you explain this change? 
I mean, the answer isn't found in the circumstances of the famine. And it's not even found in Joseph's test. Those things were merely the events to expose the nature of the heart. They didn't create the change in the heart. What created it? The engine for the change in men's hearts has always been the same. It's the Spirit of God working with the promises of God in His Word. And that is the only power in the universe capable of bringing cold, dead hearts back to life. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's the gospel. To foster love and compassion in a place that only knows hatred and spite and jealousy is something only God can do. And he does it every day through the word, through the spirit, in the lives of men and women, just like you and I. It doesn't require that we sell our family, our brothers into slavery, though I know it's tempting at times. In order for us to see the miracle of God's work in our life before and after faith, I mean, just the things that come out of our mouth sometimes, just the thoughts we harbor in our heart at times, those things convict us. But when we have a moment to prove that change, when we have those opportunities to stand before the world or before anybody and say who we have now become in Christ, it's in those moments we testify not just to them, but to ourselves. We see the change that's been done in our hearts. That's our moment to glorify the Lord that saved us and the spirit that changed us. So to take a man like Judah, who would sell his own brother into slavery one day, but offer his life in place of his brother on another day, you see the work of God in this family. And next time in our study, we'll see what Joseph does in response to the passing of his tests. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. Father, none of us are perfect, nor will we be this side of heaven. But Father, we are so thankful that you are working in our hearts to change us from who we were to who we should be in Christ. But we also know from the testimony of your scriptures, Father, that you must reveal that, that through tests and trial and tribulation, Father, we are called to act and live differently. The work that is in us, that is done by the Spirit, is one we partner with by our obedience to your word and by the leading that you give us, we follow. We've seen it in the lives of these brothers. We see it in the life of Judah particularly. But I pray, Father, we'd see it in our own lives most of all. Give us each a chance this week to reflect on what it is we do that is in keeping with your word and what it is we do that is not. Give us a courage, Father, to confess, to stand firm in the truth and to walk in the light of your word and not to give in to the flesh. But also, Father, give us the hope and the encouragement that comes from knowing you are doing this work. It is through your power, not our own, and that you are faithful even when we are not. We can rest in that. And we all look forward to the day, Father, we will stand before you in the holiness that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.